can use this if you want to, or mm -hmm. if you can talk loud. Can you all hear me? Okay, do I need to use that? We good? All right, great. Do I need to start anything here, Chandler? Or? Okay, that's great. Um, yeah, y'all, it's really great to be with you guys. Uh, I came a few, I don't know, it's probably three or four years ago I preached here, so probably, but y'all were in a different place, and I think there's a lot of new faces, so it's great to be back with you guys. Um, like Chandler said, my name is Josh McQuaid. I'm at uh, Redeemer Church in Knoxville, and um, we, we just love RUF. We have a big RUF uh, right by us at the University of Tennessee, and we're, we're partners with you guys here, and we're just really thankful for Chandler and um, and what you guys are doing here. So thanks for the invitation to be with y'all. Um, it's great to come anytime to, to worship Jesus, to think about Jesus, to look at his word. Um, we say this every, every week at Redeemer. We just really believe that whenever we get together, this is the, the most important thing that we can do. We can come to gather around the word, uh, to worship Jesus, and to consider his claims uh, on our lives. So I'm really thankful that you guys are doing this and that you've invited me to come and do this with you tonight. Um, so tonight we're going to keep going through this series that you guys are in, uh, looking at God the Questioner. Uh, and tonight we're going to consider this question that Jesus asks, and he says, what do you want me to do for you? And we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 52. Is it going to be on the screen behind me? Yeah, perfect. Some of it will be. Some of it will be? Okay, cool. So yeah, I'm going to start at 32. So just like, listen, just let it wash over you for these first few verses. And then you can read along with me. Um, okay, Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 52. Jesus says this. Uh, well, Mark says this. Jesus eventually will speak. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, uh, he, Jesus, began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we're able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they, became, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many." And they came to Jericho, and he's, as, he was as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of God, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go on your way. 
your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Amen. Let's pray and we'll think about this word. Lord, thank you uh, for your kindness to us to make yourself known in your word. Uh, Thank you that in this text, uh, we have an an example of Jesus coming and asking uh, what he might do for these people in the story. And uh, Lord, in your word, you come to us and you desire uh, to draw us to yourself and to to serve us uh, by calling us to yourself. So we pray that you do that tonight. We pray that... uh, those of us that know you, that love you, that believe in you, we would be encouraged in our faith, that any that are doubting would be encouraged, that any that don't know you, that you would open their ears um, and call them to yourself, we pray in your name. Amen. Um, well, my worst semester of, uh, of college was the spring semester of my junior year. Um, and I won't get into why it was my worst semester. It was my worst semester academically, I should say. Um, a lot of other things were great, but uh, academically, worst semester. If you really want to know uh, why, I can tell you later. But I'll, I'll sum it up this way. There was a, there was a pretty good student. I was halfway decent. Um, I, there was one class this semester that I just decided early on I did not care about. Uh, and it didn't matter. I didn't withdraw from the class. Like most of you would have been smart enough probably to withdraw from a class that you just didn't care about. I was not that smart. I was young and foolish and an idiot. Uh, and so I, I stayed in the class, but I didn't do the work. I didn't do the reading. Uh, I did no effort in whatsoever to this class. Um, but I thought I was pretty great. I thought I'm going to be fine. Uh, I mean, I'm a junior, right? Like, I, I know how school works. Um, so the end of the semester, grades start to roll out. And uh, to, to a surprise to nobody but myself, I had an F in the class. Completely failed this class, right? Not my proudest moment. Um, one lesson, if I could just give you a tidbit, always do your homework. Always do your reading or withdraw from the class. If you're not going to do that, at least withdraw, right? I did not, neither of those things. Um, and so, but in my like boldness and in my pride and my arrogance, I thought this is a great injustice. Like I shouldn't have failed this class. Like I'm great. What happened to me that I should fail this class? So I picked up the phone. I called my professor and I started demanding, you know, that he give me a better grade. Uh, and I, I don't remember exactly how this, this conversation went, but I imagine at some point, uh, my professor, Dr. Marty, uh, who is a gracious and kind man, I imagine at some point he probably said, what do you want me to do? Like, you didn't do the work. Like, you got an F because you earned an F, right? Like, you didn't do the work. What do you want me to do? And I have no idea what I said. I, I think I was just undone. And I just said, you know, I just need mercy. Like, I can't fail this class. <laughs> like, I need to graduate. I need a grade in this class. And Dr. Marty, in his kindness, uh, did not give me an F. He gave me a D, which was the most merciful grade I ever got in my life. Um, And so I was able to go on, and I never got another D, and I graduated, and I went to grad school and did fine. So I'm like an intelligent person, but I failed a class in in undergrad, okay? So my shame, your story. Um, So I don't know if you've ever had an experience like this before. If you've ever had to, like, come to someone in really big need of a favor, Um, If you have, then I suspect you know that when this question comes up, what do you want me to do for you? A lot rides on the tone of the question, right? Uh, Because there's a way that you can ask this question that's like, yeah, what do you want? And so it's sort of like exasperated with maybe the person that's coming or maybe with the request that they're bringing to you. But there's like this, this tone of who are you and why are you coming to ask me something? Um, but there's another way that this question can be asked, I think, like much more charitably, which is, what do you want me to do for you? And when the question is asked this way, it's this really amazing question, like for a human being to look into the eyes of another human being and say, what can I do for you? 
What do you want me to do for you? Is this really powerful experience? And so when we come to this question tonight, we're thinking about this text where Jesus asks two different times, two different groups of people, this question. He says, what do you want me to do for you? And when Jesus asks these different groups of people this question, it leads us to see two pretty different things. They're coming from different places. They want Jesus to do different things for them. And so when he reaches out to them and asks this question, he leads us into seeing two different things. The first thing that we're going to see is that Jesus will not be used for our purposes or for the purposes that we might co-opt Jesus and try to use him for. Jesus will not allow himself to be used for our purposes. And the second thing we're going to see is that Jesus loves to show mercy. So Jesus will not be used for our purposes, and Jesus loves to show mercy. Those are going to be our two points. And then we'll have a third at the end, just a so what practical application. But first we'll start with the fact that Jesus will not be used for our purposes. Um, I think it's probably helpful just to take a couple minutes and set up where we are in the gospel of Mark. I know you guys have been in Mark for the last couple weeks, but just to like kind of really quickly go back through where we are. Um, the big question in the first few chapters of Mark's gospel is, who is Jesus? Um, so Mark knows who he believes Jesus to be, uh, and he wants to convince us as we're reading this gospel about who Jesus is. He wants us to see that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, uh, and he has some very particular things about that that he wants to convey to us. But he's not going to do it by giving us like a philosophical argument. He's not going to do it by like arguing theologically with us. What Mark does is he walks you through the stories of the things that Jesus did. Uh, and he walks you through like what Jesus taught. And he tries to bring you along so that you'll see what the people that were around Jesus, what they came to believe about Jesus. And what Mark wants you to do, he wants you to get, wants you to get pulled along by this story so that by the end, you'll look up and you'll believe what he believes about Jesus. And you'll believe what the people around Jesus believe because you'll have seen it for yourself. You didn't just get argued into it, but you actually experienced Jesus and saw it for yourself. So what are the things that he wants us to experience about Jesus? Well, in these first few chapters, Mark wants us to see that Jesus is a man that's full of great power. Jesus is full of great power. And he shows us this by going through all of these amazing things that Jesus did in his life. Um, so you might remember if you've been in the church, if you've been around the church, if you've read the Bible, heard about Jesus at all, then you probably remember there's this story where Jesus is in a boat with the disciples, they're going across the Sea of Galilee, I think it is. Um, and this great storm comes in and everybody's afraid that they're going to die. And Jesus stands up and he just says, be still. And the storm calms down. So Jesus, this man, calms a storm, which is incredible. Nobody has a category for this. So he calms the storm. He casts out demons. People come and they're possessed by demons. He casts them out. He heals the sick. And through all of these things, what Mark is showing you is that Jesus is this guy that has uncommon power in the world. He can solve the problems that nobody else can solve, right? So Jesus has great power. Then Mark also wants us to see, not only does Jesus have great power, he also wants us to see that Jesus is full of great wisdom. So like all, all through the first eight chapters or so of Mark's gospel, Jesus keeps going like toe to toe with the religious leaders of the day right? Like they're, they're, they will ask him questions and he's always got a great answer to their question. He'll turn it back and throw a question at them and they never have an answer for his questions, right? Like he's got the wisdom and discernment to take their questions and answer them and they never know how to respond to them. He teaches in parables and the, the wisest, most intelligent, smartest people of the day are confused by this. And this is a way of showing that Jesus has this insight, this discernment into how the world works that nobody else has, right? Um, and so as you read Mark, you kind of get this idea that 
Jesus is sort of operating at like the, the doctoral level. Like he's, he's kind of at a PhD level, right? And everybody else is like 101. There's this like huge gap between Jesus and everybody else. So Jesus is a man of great power, Mark wants us to see. Jesus is a, grand, a man of great wisdom. Mark also wants you to see that Jesus is a man of great mercy. Um, so as, as Jesus is traveling around, he calls people to follow him. He doesn't call like the rich and the powerful and like the well-connected. He calls the people who have like nothing that they can contribute to his movement. So if Jesus is trying to start like a big revolution, if he's trying to do something significant in the world, he picks like all of the wrong people to follow him. So he calls like the fishermen who are like not respected at all. He calls the tax collectors who are hated. Um, He like draws near and touches people who are unclean, uh, like lepers. If you've heard of lepers, it's this like terrible disease that was not only a terrible disease, but also like kicked you out of the community and put you on like the outskirts of, of society. And Jesus would draw near to these people. This, these are the people that he called to follow him. He spoke to Gentile women. He blessed little children. Like he was a man of such mercy that he's always drawing near to the people that had nothing to offer him in return. So like this is the picture that Mark is painting for us in the first few chapters of the gospel. Jesus is full of great power, great wisdom, great mercy. The other thing that Mark wants us to see is that Jesus is extremely popular. Um, Part of, part of it is because he's doing these miracles, right? He's healing people. He's also like putting the religious leaders in their place. And so people are kind of like, man, that's pretty awesome. Like these guys that we didn't like, he's, he's kind of showing them to be fools. And so people are just sort of like milling around Jesus. He's like got all of this popularity. And, and that sort of is like, there's his closest followers, like Peter, James, and John. There's the 12. There's this other group of like 70 that seem to be following him. But then there's these huge crowds too that just show up for like the spectacle of Jesus, right? Um, so I love in, in Mark chapter three, verse 10, we read this. He says that uh, Jesus had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. So there's these like huge crowds that are just like, Jesus is there. We're going to get as close as we can because maybe if we can touch him, something cool will happen, right? This is just like the crowd that follows him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and they cried out, you are the son of God. So it's like, chaos, right? Jesus is full of great power. He's full of great wisdom. He's full of great mercy. And there's chaos everywhere he goes because the crowds are just like mad for him. Um, And part of the reason that all of this is happening to Jesus, it's not just that there's power and mercy and wisdom and crowds, like all of that's true. But like, there's a very particular thing that's happening around Jesus in the beginning of of Mark's gospel. And it's that the people are starting to think maybe this Jesus, maybe he's going to be the Christ is kind of this like technical word that they're saying, maybe he's going to be the Messiah. Um, And you've probably heard this term before. You probably know like a little bit about the Messiah, maybe a lot. Uh, but the Messiah, it's sort of this like mysterious figure that, that people at this time were looking forward to. They were anticipating somebody that would come and would pick up all the promises that God had given to David. And he, he would sit on David's throne again. He'd be David's son. Uh, he would reestablish David's kingdom in the world. And so what this would mean, what they were expecting that this would mean, is that he would come and he would kick out all of the pagan rulers, all of Rome, all the soldiers that like held God's people under their, their boot he would come and he would kick them out. Uh, They expected he would come and he would clean the temple out and he would reestablish like holy worship of God. And so they were looking forward to this Messiah who would come, who would set up a powerful religious and political kingdom. And so as we get to like chapter eight in Mark's gospel, right before here, there's all of these rumors about Jesus that are sort of starting to come into focus. And people are starting to think, 
uh, this Jesus, he's the Messiah. He's got so much power. He's got so much mercy. He's got so much wisdom. Uh, this guy's the Messiah, right? And so when we get to our text, uh, chapter 10, verse 30, 37, uh, when James and John come up to Jesus and they say this, they say, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. They're not saying like, hey, like after we all die in the resurrection and we go to heaven, like when we get to heaven, hey, can we have some like cool places to be? Can we like be on your right hand and your left in heaven? That's not, that's not what they have in mind at all. Like what they've done is they, they believe that they're part of a political movement that's headed to Jerusalem to take power like tomorrow. Like we're marching down and we're storming the city and we're going to kick the leaders out. And what these guys are doing, what James and John are doing is they're angling up next to Jesus. They've gotten him kind of privately when everybody else is over there. And they're saying, hey, can we be like the vice president and the secretary of state? Like when you come to power, can you give us the like places of power next to you? Make us like more important than everybody else, than all these other guys that are following you. So what they're doing, what they're asking of Jesus is that he would make them really important. That Jesus would uh, serve their personal agendas. Um, And see, the request, it comes from this like really big misunderstanding that they have of what Jesus is all about. Because the first verses that we read back in verse 33, Jesus has just said, like, I'm not going to Jerusalem to take over David's throne in the way that everybody expects me to. If you remember or look back there, verse 33, what he says is, he says, the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death. They will deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. So like Jesus is saying very clearly, the thing that you expect, like all the power, all of the like, authority that you're the glory that you're imagining that's not what I'm about but that's not what I'm doing but we don't know I mean maybe James and John just had a way of like maybe they just didn't hear him maybe they thought he was speaking in like metaphors or parables uh maybe they just thought he was saying like look it's gonna be messy it's gonna get ugly but it's gonna be okay I mean he says I'm gonna rise again so like maybe he's just saying it's gonna be messy but it's all gonna be okay Uh, But whatever they're thinking, whatever they think he means, one thing is really clear. They still believe that they can leverage Jesus to advance themselves in the world, to kind of get their own personal ambition taken care of. They're trying to use Jesus to make something of themselves. They're trying to fit Jesus and his mission in the mold that they have for him. And so you see how Jesus responds to this. Uh, In verse 38, he says, look, you don't know, you don't know what you're asking. Uh, to sit at my right hand or my left, he's saying, it's not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it's been prepared. So I think what Jesus is saying to them is, look, you're looking for power and prestige. You're trying to fit me in to your vision of what you're all about, but I'm doing something else here. Like I'm about something that you don't understand yet. Um, I do think it's really important. We'll come back to this in a second. I think it's really important uh, to also recognize what Jesus does not say here. Um, Because I think like maybe it seems normal that this is like a really absurd question. I think like, hey, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we want. Like whatever we're going to ask, we want you to do it. Right. And then when the question actually comes in, it's even more absurd because it's like, hey, give us all the power, all the the privilege. And so I think there's a part of us that would think that would expect Jesus to say, y'all are crazy. Like you don't belong here. Like and kick them out. Right? That's maybe what we would expect to hear from Jesus. But Jesus' answer is actually like super kind 
and super gentle to them. Because what he says is, uh, he says it here in verse, I didn't write it down, but it's, it's there. Uh, he says, the cup that I drink, you will drink. The baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. What he says is, hey, you don't get it yet. You're confused, but just keep following me. It's gonna be okay. Like, it's all gonna work out. Like, y'all are okay. That's an absurd question. Uh, don't tell anybody else you asked me that, right? But just like follow me and we're gonna be okay. Just like super kind and gentle to them. Um, but then, of course, the rest of the disciples do find out. So verse 41, they respond exactly the way that you and I would respond uh, if we found out that our friends had done this. And they say, when the, ter- the 10 heard this, they began to be indignant at James and John, which is understandable, right? I mean, these guys have just tried to like uh, usurp all the power and privilege for themselves. They've just tried to outmaneuver all of their friends and to take all the positions of power. Uh, and so, so Jesus has this little fight on his hands. He's got like the 12 who are supposed to be his closest followers that are walking with him and know him and living with him. And they're all fighting amongst themselves, right? So what does he do? He sits them down, verse 42, and he says, look, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. For whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what Jesus is saying here is, look, you know the rules that the world runs on. Like, you know how the rulers of the world operate. Everybody's always trying to get ahead. Everybody's got to be in charge. Everybody wants power. And if you've got to step on some people to get there, that's okay. Like, we all know the rules of the, of the world and how it works, right? And that's exactly what James and John have just done. Like, they've just tried to step on their friends to advance themselves. And that's also sort of what the 10 are doing in response to James and John. Right, because they're they're responding and saying like, "Who are you? Like, why shouldn't we have the positions of power?" Right, and so they're all playing the same game. <laughs> That's what Jesus is saying to them. He's saying like, "You're all playing the same game that the world is playing. You're all just trying to get ahead of each other. You're all just trying to to take advantage. You're all just trying to use me." Jesus is saying to get ahead. Um, what Jesus is saying is, "My kingdom runs on different rules," right? Like, you all know the rules of the world. My kingdom runs a different way. In, in my kingdom, it's service, not power, that, that uh, makes the kingdom work. Uh, in my kingdom, it's mercy, not your own agenda, not your own priorities that matters. So Jesus doesn't let James and John, he doesn't let the other 10 get away uh, with trying to use him to serve themselves or their purposes. Instead, he's reminding them that his kingdom is about showing mercy. Um, His kingdom is about showing mercy. And that's the second story that we're we're looking at tonight. So let's look at that for a few minutes. Um, Blind Bartimaeus is this guy that Jesus encounters on his way out of Jericho. Uh, and, And again, remember, like the crowds are following Jesus. They all think we're going to Jerusalem. We're overtaking the capital. Like we're gonna put Jesus on the throne. So they're on this really big, important mission, right? And then all of a sudden, verse 46, we hear that a blind beggar sitting by the roadside, he starts crying out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And, uh, and we see the response of the people. We can kind of understand the response of the people. They rebuke him, verse 48. They're like, hey man, we're on, we're on an official business. We're on like a really big, important mission. Like we don't have time for you. This like blind beggar sitting here that can't even like find his way around. Like we don't, we have no, you serve no purpose for us, right? So they rebuke him and they tell him to be silent. 
Um, and so again, like this is, this is the 12 that are following Jesus who are supposed to know him. These are like the wider crowds that are with him. They're the ones that respond to blind Bartimaeus and say like, hey man, we don't have time for you. Um, it's funny, like you're, what you're supposed to hear in this text too is that they're reacting to blind Bartimaeus the exact same way that they responded when people brought children to Jesus for Jesus to bless them. Those are earlier in the same chapter in Mark chapter 10. People bring children to Jesus for him to lay his hands on them and to bless them. And there in, in verse 13, we read that the disciples rebuked them. So it's the exact same response. Right? We rebuke blind Bartimaeus, we rebuke the children. But there when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and he said to them, let the children come to me, don't hinder them. Uh, and so here Jesus does the same thing. Like blind Bartimaeus is crying out for mercy. The people, the disciples, those that are around Jesus rebuke him. They tell him to be silent, but Jesus hears and he draws near. Uh, and, and in verse 51, he says to, to blind Bartimaeus, he asks our question. He says, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man said, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Uh, see, in both the story of the children and the story of blind Bartimaeus, what we find is that Jesus loves to show mercy. He loves to show mercy to the children. He loves to show, show mercy to Bartimaeus. And he even showed mercy to, the, to James and John, right? Like we just saw that. He was kind and gentle and merciful to them. He gently corrects them and shows mercy. Uh, and so Jesus loves to show mercy. And he says that this comes from what he describes as the center of his ministry. Verse 45, he says, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. The son of man came not to be served, but to serve. And he, the son of man came to give his life, he says, as a ransom for many. Um, I think sometimes when we hear this, like we might have a tendency to maybe spiritualize that, right? Uh, and maybe we think, well, he gives his life. I mean, that, okay, so he's a great example for us so that we can like give our lives for other people. Ransom, what is ransom? Like maybe that means that he kind of like gives us a new perspective, right? So we can like hear those words and think that Jesus is talking about some really uh, spiritualized thing, but he really wants us to know that's not what he's talking about. Uh, and the reason you know this is that if you look way back at the beginning of the text where we started tonight, again, verse 33, what, John, what Mark says is, the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They'll condemn him to death. They'll deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. See, Jesus is not talking about a uh, metaphorical dying. <laughs> He's not talking about a spiritual dying. Like what Jesus is saying here is, I'm actually going to Jerusalem and I'm actually going to die. Like real people are really going to kill me. And what he's saying to us is like that death is an actual sacrifice, not like a metaphorical thing. This is not a game. Like I'm actually going to die and I'm actually going to die as a sacrifice for you and for your sins. Uh, that death is actually going to be a ransom paid to free you from sin in your life. This is a real thing. And then after my death, I'm going to raise up and, and just as I am raised up, so you who look to me and believe in me, so you too will be raised up and I will pour out my spirit on you and I will actually transform you. Like he's giving them real, real hope in the world, not to live in the same old patterns, but to live in new ways because Jesus delights to show mercy. He delights to transform his disciples and us by his spirit. 
uh, and he, he delights to call us and to enable us to walk in his ways in the world. Um, so that's what's happening in this text. That's a lot. Uh, hopefully some of that will be like more than just interesting, but let me give you a couple takeaways. Like that's a, that is a lot to like digest. So let me like give you, I think there's a lot of different things that we could say as application points for this text, but let me just give you two that I hope will stick with you uh, that, that are really encouraging to me, really helpful. Um, the first thing that I want you to see from this text in terms of practical application is that following Jesus in the world will make you both a really broad-minded person, like a broad, more broadly-minded person than the world has any categories for. And it will also make you an extremely narrow-minded person. <laughs> it will make you such a narrow-minded person that you will frustrate the heck out of the world. So following Jesus will make you both a really broad-minded person and it will also make you a really narrow-minded person. And, and here's what I mean. Um, there are a million things in the world that are vying for your affection, that are vying for your loyalty and your love. Um, I mean, this, this happens at like a, a really silly level. There are like silly brands that like want your affection, that want your attention. Like maybe you're an Apple person, maybe you're a Microsoft person, right? This is silly. This is not important, right? But at one level, these are things that want your attention. And these are things that want your allegiance and want you to like go to your friends and say, no, no, don't buy that, buy this, right? They're looking to influence you and to have you give them uh, your allegiance. Uh, other silly things that might have your affection, maybe Taco Bell. I have a lot of people that live near me that are all about the Taco Bell. And I've, I'm going to be honest, I've never understood it. Um, but a lot of people are all about the Taco Maybe Ole Miss football. Uh, oh, Chandler perked up. There he is. Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe, yeah. So maybe the Atlanta Braves. Like these are all things that are like vying for your attention and for your affection, right? These are silly things, but they're real. They do want your attention. Um, but then there are like more serious things in the world that also want your allegiance, right? Um, so maybe your career. Maybe you won't be able to like advance in your career unless you really give yourself to it and you commit, you're all in. Um, maybe uh, a political party, right? So like we have allegiances that are ironclad. We vote this way, not that way. We vote right, we vote left. Like we give ourselves to these allegiances and they demand loyalty of us. Uh, there are social movements, there are causes, like all of these things are vying for our allegiance. And one of the things that I think is really important for us to recognize as, as Christians or people who are considering what it means to follow Jesus in the world is the more serious a thing is in the world that would demand your loyalty and call your allegiance, the more likely that that thing will take on the mantle of Jesus and try to use Jesus to demand your loyalty of it. Um, I heard a preacher uh, preach on this text not that long ago, and he used this quote that I thought was really helpful. Um, this is a quote from a guy who was a speechwriter for LBJ, uh, the U.S. president, and he said this. He said, Biblical imagery is part of the American tradition. No matter what your personal beliefs are, the Old Testament, the New Testament, it's all woven into who we are, Christian, Jew, or whatever. Religious metaphors, religious language form a kind of bond in America you can think of it either in literal or literary terms. Even if you're basically secular, the ideals and principles that come out of religion are essentially what we should all share. Um, I don't know if you hear that, it's a little bit of a long quote, but like what this guy is saying is it actually doesn't matter whether you believe the Bible or not. It doesn't really matter whether you believe in Jesus or not. The point is not whether these things are true, this guy is saying, the point is whether they're useful <laughs> to get people to do what you want them to do. 
Uh, and so he's speaking as like a political mover in the world. And what he's saying is, man, I'll use anything to get people to vote for my guy. <laughs> I'll use Jesus. I'll use the Bible. I'll use whatever if that will get them on my side. And this is true of like everything in society. Not only will we use whatever, but Jesus in particular gets used by so many different things to try to like, they'll pick up Jesus's language. They'll pick up his values and they'll lay it out there. And they say, if you follow him, then you have to give me your allegiance. Um, And it's not just like the world out there. It's not just politicians that do this. Like Christians do this too. Um, so the way, some of the ways that Christians do this is we will pit church against church or church tradition against church tradition, uh, or we will pit like Christian leader against Christian leader. And it's not to say that like what we believe, what this particular person believes, it's not to say that that doesn't matter or that different churches, that those don't matter. But what we do is we will boil Jesus down. (laughs) We will squeeze Jesus down into a mold that fits my agenda so that I can come to you and say, if you really want to take Jesus seriously, you got to be with me. And I'll like ignore all the other things that are inconvenient so that I can use Jesus to build my brand or to build my uh, authority or to make you follow me. Um, so Christians do this too. We'll squeeze Jesus down. We'll boil him down so that we can demand that people give to us what they owe only to Jesus. But here's the thing, you know, in this text, Jesus is setting up, uh, setting up a completely different vision for how the world works, uh, for how his mission moves in the world. James and John want to take Jesus and make him part of their thing. The 10, the other 10 disciples, they want to take Jesus and they want to make him a part of their thing and set him up, that, so that, make him set them up so that people will follow them and take them seriously. Even the crowds that are following Jesus, like they have expectations of Jesus that he must do what they want him to do. And in every one of these situations, what Jesus says in this text is, I'm not interested in what you want me to do. I'm doing my thing and you can follow me, but I'm not doing your thing. Uh, And so I think the practical implications of this for us are that as we move out into the world and we encounter people in the world, that resonate with Jesus in these really small ways. Um, Maybe they're even trying to use Jesus to get us to follow them. But as Christians, one of the things that we actually have the freedom to do is when we encounter people in the world that align with Jesus, even in really small ways, is we can be like super thankful (laughs) that they love something that's beautiful. They love something that God has invited them to delight in. Um, so if you think about this, like from across the political spectrum, across the social spectrum, like there are all sorts of different things that people give themselves to, right? Um, so just a few different examples. I mean, you might be somebody that's like all in on environmental, like stopping climate change, right? This might be something that somebody really cares about. You might be all in on uh, rights of the unborn, right? You might be all in on racial justice. You might be all in on like, there's all of these different things. And the reality is every one of those things and so many more. The Bible actually invites us to delight in these things and to desire these things, every one of them. And all of these things that in our world are used to divide people and they skew on right and left. Like as Christians, we actually have the complete freedom to look at these things and say like, yeah, you know what, you're right. Like you may be completely different than me politically or socially, but you're absolutely right that you should desire that thing and that God invites you to delight in that thing. So we have this opportunity as Christians to be incredibly broad-minded and to like move out into the world in a way that nobody has a category for that, right? But the difference for us as Christians is where the rest of the world puts their hope 
in their in that thing getting solved and in their systems solving this problem that we love. We are called as Christians to give our allegiance to Jesus. And so where the rest of the world says, yeah, and my solution to this is I'm going to vote this way, or my solution to this is I'm going to give my money here, or my solution is I'm going to be a part of this movement. What we say as Christians is, hold on, like Jesus promises that, but he promises that he will give that. Not that movement, not that leader, not that party, not what that thing is. And so Jesus actually invites us to see that he will not serve our purposes. And so we can't just give our allegiance to all of the different institutions and the systems that men create. Because we're, we're to follow Jesus. So we're both more broad than the world and we're much more narrow than the world as well. Um, the second and final practical application that I want to give you guys tonight is I, I really want you to see from this text that the way of Jesus is the way of mercy. And this is really hard for us, I think, to reckon with uh, because we all want mercy for ourselves, but we don't always want mercy for people that bother us. Uh, We don't always want mercy for our enemies. Uh, But the way of Jesus is the way of mercy, and this is true both for us and for the people that we don't like. Um, And I think, you know, depending on how all of us are wired, we all see the world differently. Some of us will struggle more with one side of this than the other. Some of us will struggle to believe that Jesus wants to show me mercy. And some of us will struggle to believe that Jesus wants to show that guy mercy. But they're both true. Um, So there's this really beautiful little book uh, called Gentle and Lowly. I don't know if any of you guys have come across this. Yeah, I see a fist pump in the back. Um, So Dane Ortland, the guy that wrote this, is a PCA pastor uh, from Chicago. Uh, And so I'm originally from Chicago, sort of. And so anyway, feel this allegiance to Dane, and I love this book. Um, But he has this line in, in the book that I think is really great where he says, the freeness of God's grace and love which is really just his way of talking about God's mercy. So the, the mercy of God is not only the gateway, but the mercy of God is also the pathway of life, of the Christian life. So the mercy of Jesus is not only the gateway, but it's also the pathway of the Christian life. And I think sometimes we forget that the only gateway to following Jesus is his mercy. Uh, sometimes we think that we like earned our place with Jesus Uh, that we were so great that Jesus was always going to save us because like we're something special. The gateway to Jesus is always his mercy. It's always his kindness. We never did anything to deserve Christ's mercy for us. And the reason this matters for us is that when we forget that the gateway to Jesus is his mercy, then we struggle to extend mercy to the people that drive us nuts (laughs) because we forget that one time Jesus showed us mercy. So the way of Jesus is the way of mercy, and it's this gateway. It's this thing, the way that we enter into following him is purely of his mercy. And it's the mercy that we're then invited to extend to those that are our enemies in the world. The way of Jesus is the way of mercy. And I think that sometimes we forget that mercy also isn't just the gateway. It's not just the way we start, but it's also like the whole of the Christian life is Jesus's mercy to us. I don't know why this happens to us, but so many of the times, so many times when we come in uh, to following Jesus, we think that we're going to start out with mercy and then we're going to achieve, we're going to maintain our place by being so great, by being so perfect, by getting it right. Uh, And part of it is I think we want to show that Jesus didn't make a mistake (laughs) when he showed us mercy, right? And so we want to live in a way that shows that he was right to save us. Um, But the reality is, Jesus's mercy is the thing that that brings us in, and Jesus's mercy is the only thing that's going to sustain us in the world. Um, So the way of Jesus is the way of mercy.
And so the prayer tonight is that we would learn more and more to stop using Jesus to serve our purposes. Um, The prayer tonight is that we would stop taking Jesus and trying to co-opt him for our agenda. Our prayer tonight is that we would stop giving ourselves over to false messiahs in the world, things that promise us that they will solve X problem for us, but they will always disappoint us. And instead, the prayer tonight is that we would give ourselves to following Jesus, uh, to his ways in the world, to his mercy that he offers to us. Uh, And the prayer for us tonight, too, is that we would learn more and more of his mercy, his mercy for us, his sacrifice for us, that we would not only receive it, but that we would also be able by his spirit to turn and offer it to one another in the ways that we harm one another and hurt one another in the ways that our neighbors hurt us, that we would also be able to extend mercy to them because that's the way of Jesus. Let me pray for us. Lord, I do thank you for your mercy uh, and your grace. Uh, Thank you for coming and making yourself known. Thank you for calling us to follow you. We do pray that you would uh, send us out tonight uh, by your spirit, full of your mercy and love for one another, we pray in your name. Amen.